Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. For nearly two decades, professional photographer Jim Harrington has been working on a portrait series of influential rock and mountain climbers. The resulting book, The Climbers, documents these rugged individualists who, from roughly the 1930s to the 1970s, used primitive gear, along with their wits, talent, and fortitude to tackle unscaled peaks around the world. Today, these men and women are renowned for their accomplishments and in many cases are the last of the remaining practitioners from the so-called golden age of the 20th century climbing. Harrington's images, the result of his own passion for climbing, allow us to study the faces of climbers who were driven to do the impossible for another reason than the challenge. In these portraits, he's captured the humanity of obsession, determination, intellect, and frailty. Jim Harrington was in Salt Lake City recently for events, and we're grateful that he has joined us. Thank you for joining Access Utah. Thank you very much for having me. So you have, uh, a lot of your career has been uh, photographs of musicians, but I guess unbeknownst to a lot of people on the side, uh, or this has been a passion of yours, climbing, and that led to, uh, I guess, this project. Yes, my secret subject for a couple decades was this climber book, Everyone was uh, certain there would be a music book in my future, and there will be soon, but they didn't think it would be the second book. Uh, so, yeah, you've photographed Benny Goodman, uh, Willie Nelson, Rolling Stones, Carmack McCarthy, uh, Morgan Freeman, Dolly Parton, many others. Uh, some iconic uh, photographs for many magazines and other publications. So you say that'll, uh, I guess that'll be your second book. That's the book. Uh, I think we're going to have it coming out in 2019 going to start it uh, in about three or four months. But I'm still uh, full steam ahead on the Climber book. It's just, uh, it came out in October, and um, I was on the road with that for three months and had to lay down over Christmas and get some sleep, and now I'm just starting off again on a wonderful note of seven delayed flights. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so we're grateful that you're taking some time with, with us, uh, sleep-deprived and all. Appreciate that. Um, so uh, let me start with, with you. You've, you had, uh, I guess you noticed an, an interest in climbing from an early age. Yeah, I think all of the stuff kind of came about at the same time. The music and the climbing and the mountains and photography seemed to all seep in um, pretty much at the same time, you know, there were things that I could only do, you know, I could sort of learn about photography through books. Um, you know, I, I couldn't go climbing mountains yet, but the interest was there from the beginning. It's when I could do each one. And it took me a bit, you know, into the mid seventies when I was in my teens to start climbing, but it all took off around then. Yeah. And um, I guess non-climbers to climbers, this is the question you always get, I'll ask it. What's the fascination? Why why climb? Oh, I don't know. You know, it's, uh, I mean, you know, the excuse is kids climb. We all climb. Everybody climbed when they were kids, so we're climbers. You know, we evolved from apes, if you believe that or not. Um, you know, we climb. It's just a matter of why do we stop climbing, right? Hmm. I mean, kids climb the curtains, they climb trees. Um, you know, maybe it's childish, that's why they stop. But, uh, you know, it's an activity. I was never a, a real sports um, enthusiast as far as things that involve balls and running around with a ball. Uh, but I did have a lot of physical energy that I needed to burn off in some way. And, 
there was some aesthetic uh, attraction, I think, to climbing and and certainly being a bit of a loner. There was, uh, you know, you could make your own path. You could choose the way you wanted to do it. There wasn't a coach yelling at you. And there was a lot of history to it. There was um, some romance. There was a craft. There were skills to learn. Um, but, you know, if, if you just want to talk about climbing, the pure movement up through the mountains is, is wonderful. I guess you get it or you don't. Yeah, and, uh, and people that do really, really do get it. Um, I want to... I'm trying to find this uh, quote here. This is from the Forward to You book, which was written by Alex Honnold. I had the pleasure of interviewing him on this show uh, oh, a year or two ago. Uh, he says, George Mallory may have said that he wanted to climb Everest because it's there. Of course, the very famous quote. Honnold goes on to say, yet that doesn't do justice to the rich web of motivations that guide us each toward the mountains. And they're both right. Um, Alex is right for explaining that out like he did, but um, Mallory was also right for giving a flippant response, which is, you know, equally as valid, I think. I mean, it was a joke response when he said that. Everyone knows the story now that it was, you know, more of a just a philosophical joke that he said to, I think, some persistent reporter who was nagging him, how because it's there. (laughs) It became this kind of fortune cookie feel good saying but but you know why not because it's there mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah you know, i think you could blend um mallory's and honold's descriptions just fine but you know there's a lot of things you, you've got people who climb short quick climbs that are you know they're not forgotten country like people were climbing in the alps and the, in everest and the himalaya back in the 30s 40s 50s these big noble, you know, expeditions going out to climb stuff. And you have people that climb alone, you know, quietly for the fun of it. You know, there there are so many motivations to approach it with. And, you know, going out with, you know, I'm sure it was a crazy blast with um, Mallory and Hillary going on these expeditions. I mean, it's like going to war or something. Not that that sounds good, but, you know, the camaraderie and all that. It must have been something back in that day, exploring places that, no, you know, people just had really never gone. Uh, you know, outsiders. But you, then again, the athleticism of it is, is mm-hmm. wonderful, to you know, just to be able to climb and that part. So there's so many ways to look at climbing, and maybe that's what attracts me about it. You, uh, growing up in North Carolina, you um, there was a climbing shop that you, you found, and you'd bicycle over and yeah there's one scene in your preface where you uh i can't remember what it, what it is is it's a it's a boot i guess ah uh, yeah it's a fine italian handcrafted leather boot <laughs> that i had stuck up to my face smelling it like some character from a john waters movie <laughs> <clears throat> just a, f- a fascination that that you that you had now now then later on well, you, you, re- you know, entered that world back to that last answer that I was giving about all these approaches. I mean, the other thing, especially when I was a kid, was the gear. I mean, everything's brightly colored. I don't know, it's not as attractive to me now, but when I was a kid, these leather boots and these wool knickers and, you know, the clothes you saw these guys wearing in the 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, And then when I was that age, you know, there was still a hint of that stuff still around. It hadn't turned into neon lycra yet. And 
and these things were incredibly beautiful boots and it, it's seductive and and they smell great the glue <laughs> Maybe I was just huffing. I don't know. <laughs> could could have been. Could have been. <laughs> That's right. Um, you um, you paint a scene, a very effective scene in in the book. You you develop a fascination for the Sierras, right? And at one point, you you live in L.A. and you're not too far from that. But then you you in the book you contrast then and now. I wonder if you could do that a little bit for me. You you paint a scene of now. Um, you know, people filming themselves, and it's kind of crowded, but. Oh, yeah, right. <clears throat> well, yeah, I mean, you know, when I started going there in the early 80s, which I know there's not deep history, but that's when I started going there, and it still seemed to be kind of a secret, um, you know, before the Internet and cell phones, and it was ranchers and these um, oddball climbers that knew about the place, and... Um, but, you know, if you go back to farther, the guys that I photographed that were climbing there in the 20s, that, you know, nowadays you can get up there in three hours from L.A. and get an In-N-Out burger on the way, drive through with air conditioning. But back when Glenn Dawson <clears throat> and Jules Eichhorn would have driven up from L.A., it was a two-day trip um, with a lot of dirt road. And when they would get up there, there may not be anybody climbing on the east eastern escarpment of the Sierra Nevada. So, you know, it's it's an interesting contrast between people kind of live tweeting their V12 volt bouldering successes with you know these two young guys on a hemp rope way up Mount Whitney in the early 30s. Uh, and a hemp rope that you know that highlights the the great disparity between the equipment and a hemp rope that uh, I think you write in the book that might well have snapped if you'd uh, you know if you'd put full weight on it. Um, all the more impressive what these uh, what these guys achieved with with that primitive equipment. Well, it never fails to yeah blow me away. I I thought I knew that fact that you just stated, but the more I read about them and, and travel and see some of their routes and talk to them, you know, you just, these young kids, they couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm joking, but, you know, in those shoes, in, in the just the worst gear you could wear for, you know, if you look at it by today's standards, it's like, my God, you're climbing these incredible, difficult faces with, you know, it's with the barest of protection. Um, you, the two gentlemen you mentioned—that's where this project started, right? You you uh, wanted to go out. These these two uh, had had climbed in the twenties, and they're still alive in the nineties. In their eighties, you sought them out. You know who I really wanted. Um, my fascination of the Sierra had me reading many books about it. But there was a character named uh, Norman Clyde, who was a very prolific kind of hermit, interesting guy on the east side of the Sierra, and he had done all these solo first ascents in the teens, 20s, and he was actually with these guys when they did the first ascent of the east face of Mount Whitney. And by the time I got the idea to start finding some of these old Sierra climbers, which was the original idea, um, Norman Clyde had died, but Glenn and Jules were still alive, very old, <clears throat> but probably you know the last really old guys left. And like I did with the music stuff and the way I kind of 
track down these legends. I was just attracted to it. It was a I wasn't thinking about a book. It just seemed like the natural thing that I go do. And that's what I did with them. Mm. Thinking, well, maybe I'll get a few of these Sierra climbers photographs. Who knows what I'll do with it? Then it developed from there. It became, you know, beyond the Sierras and eventually beyond America. Uh, and it, there, there's a, I don't know. This was the this is the tone I guess I would have felt is kind of an, an elegiac tone, but also urgency. These people are are dying, and you're you're trying to get to them before they they die. In some cases, right? Well, yeah, you know, once I <clears throat> realized that I had an actual thing going, you know, once it kind of branched out from the Sierra and became American and then became international, uh, then, you know, I mean, it's obvious all all along these guys are quite old and they're not going to be around, but, you know, once I really realized I had a project going, then, yeah, I, I could hear the clock ticking and, um, you know, I miss some people that I regret, but... It's okay. I got over that. But yeah, there was a definite urgency. I wonder, uh, let's take a break first. And when I come back, I want to have you tell me about some, some of the people. It's just some fascinating, fascinating people and, and uh, just striking photographs. Uh, I want to come back. Maybe you could talk about Bradford Washburn. He, he's on the, on the cover, right? Yes, that's him. His steel, front cover. steely gaze. He's an older gentleman. Steely gaze. You can, <laughs> you can just feel the, the 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 determination coming out of him. Um, and then maybe talk about Ricardo. Cass, do you call it Cassine? Cassine. Cassine. Yeah. Uh, you you got him at a hundred years old, a couple of weeks before he died. Uh, let's right. let's talk about those two after a break. We're talking um, with uh, photographer Jim Harrington. Uh, made a career of uh, photographing musicians, uh, mostly. Uh, his work has appeared on album covers and international ad campaigns from magazines such as Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, Esquire, GQ. and uh, But his, uh, his book, latest book out, fascinating book, is about climbers, rock and mountain climbers, and it's called The Climbers. And that is out now. Uh, he was in Salt Lake City for events recently, and we're uh, glad to have him with us more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Office of Global Engagement, providing global learning opportunities at the Study Abroad Fair, Tuesday, January 30th, 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. in the Taggart Student Center. Details at abroad.usu.edu. And a guy came up on a bike behind me and tried to grab my phone. And so we started wrestling. I got my phone back, <laughs> and I thought, okay, that's it, that's the end of this, but it wasn't. Lessons from a mugging and other true stories in a live show from Dublin, Ireland, next time on the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. Join us Saturday night at 6 on Utah Public Radio. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're back with Jim Harrington. Photographer, he's out with uh, a book. The Climbers is what it's called, and you can call, you can find that at theclimbersbook.com. You can also go to jimharrington.com um, and, uh, and find the book. Uh, it's it's uh, photographs of uh, influential rock and mountain climbers. It began with a couple of gentlemen who had climbed in the twenties in the Sierras, and then expanded to many of the most influential uh, rock and mountain climbers uh, from the 20s through the 70s. Uh, Jim Harrington, you wanted to do the so-called Golden Age. Is that what that that's where it be, that's where it went? That's what you wanted to do. 
That's what it became, yeah. I mean, the original thing was just tracking down the oldest guys I could find in the Sierra, and then it became, <clears throat> you know, finding the oldest guys all the way around. But I did have to kind of uh, define the parameters of what I was going to do. Obviously, the oldest people I could find, uh, there was nobody before the 20s still living. So the 20s was easy to figure out, but what about the other end? And I decided the 70s when I started. I started in 76, and I thought that was a good cutoff because that you know, became my era. And I didn't want it to be about my era. I was wanting it to be about this previous era. And also around that time, things were starting to change by you know, the late 70s and 80s. Um, I think I say the remarkable had become commonplace <laughs> mm-hmm. but um you know you might see these guys on tv more often there were on coca-cola ads and there was that kind of under the radar real you know individual thing about the older climbers that was very attractive to me and those kind of guys that i wanted to find that were doing it on their own you know struggling to find maps mm-hmm. you know things or word of mouth just a different era before me is what it ends up being okay yeah well good cutoff point um tell me about ricardo cassin he's you describe him i think as you described him as the babe ruth of climbing in in europe um you know made his fame in the 30s was a uh part of the resistance world war ii just just uh, on and on maybe start with how you how you got to him it was kind of a like a spy novel yeah. Well, I think the Babe Ruth quote was from someone else, but yeah, yeah, you could say that about him. But yeah, Ricardo, I guess he was the first one that made this project international. Um, and I knew he was quite old. He was, uh, you know, a hundred years old when I finally found him. But it was, you know, all the, a lot of the stuff was pre-internet. So you know, just finding out if some of these guys who were living up in villages in Europe, if they were still alive, uh, wasn't always easy. You had to send letters and wait for replies or find someone to translate something for you, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it took time. It wasn't just a matter of Googling on the Internet or, you know. So I, uh, you know, started building up this kind of web of contacts these kind of shady underworld characters that um, mountaineering enthusiasts, book collectors. <laughs> I never knew who these guys were particularly, but I had their phone numbers, and, um, you know, I would call them up, and they said, okay, here is Nico's number. You call him at 2 a.m., he gives you the next number. And then finally, you end up getting this connection, and I got through to... Um, Ricardo Cassin, or at least his son, who doesn't really speak English, so that was the best I could do. But I was traveling through Europe, and I managed to uh, go to Lecco, which is on the shores of beautiful Lake Como, and meet Ricardo's son, who took me up into the old man's house high in the Alps as he's dying, obviously, and the family's there holding holding a vigil, there's kids running around in the yard drinking lemonade, 
kind of sun dappling through the trees, absolutely beautiful. And, um, well, it's as beautiful as a sad thing can be. Mm. Everyone's, you know, he's sitting in a chair in the living room, and, I mean, you couldn't write it better for a, you know, a, a Scorsese movie. It was just so picturesque with everything that was going on and hidden. Very dignified and just, you know, knowing he's going. Mm. Uh, and tell me a bit about he, the, the photograph. And that's he died the, a week later. He died a week later, yes, yes. I mean, so your photographs might have been the, the last ones uh, of him. Um, tell me about the photograph that's uh, that's in the book uh, featuring Ricardo Cassin. Well, it's probably the last <laughs> black and white analog film photograph of him, but who knows that either. Uh, would you like to know about the f- the photograph? Yes. Uh-huh. That is, uh, I'm standing outside the house looking in through the window, and he's in the chair that, you know, I would think he's kind of been in a lot lately. And they've got him turned towards the window. He can look out at the beautiful Italian Alps. And he's lived in this area for a 100 years, literally, for a century. And his face is eaten up. I, he seemed to maybe have some kind of skin cancer. I never found out. Uh, maybe that's what was killing him. Um, I write about that uh, maybe too too many days too close to the sun. I wonder. But that, the photograph is is looking in. Of course, um, it's hard to describe a photograph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful photograph. Um, the, the the photographs, by and large, are. Older men. Um, it's it's uh, vigorous people um, who have obviously sought out and and conquered challenges, uh, you know, stiff challenges in in their lives. That kind of a personality, you're catching them near near the end of their lives. Um, what are you specifically trying to trying to capture? And they're they're you know mostly faces, right? Or you know you're 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 getting their faces. Well, I'd like to answer this in a two-part way because you say they're mostly men, but um, people have commented that they are mostly men. But I went very out of my way to get women included in this. <clears throat> of course, there weren't as many women climbing back in the day, and they die just as fast as men do. So um, there weren't many to find. But you do have some, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I have as many as I could get, which is right. five or six. But you know, I, I will say that I, I would love to have had more women. And what was the actual question? Uh, the question is: These are uh, obviously they're. You know, I guess the, the the bottom line question is: What are you what are you trying to to capture? These are these are kind of a self selected group of people. Um, passion for climbing, passion, I guess, for challenge. You're catching them no. later in their um, lives. Um, no, I don't, I mean, I don't expect those things to show up in the photograph. Um, I think what I do, it's hard to describe what I think about and what I see and what I think I might get. Um, they're not really tangible thoughts or or words. They're more emotional, not to sound cliche, but they just are, but... No, I'm not trying to make them necessarily... I, I guess I do want them to look iconic, or even better, like the music people and those people that I shot. I think that I you know, would like someone to look at the photos and you know, wonder who the hell they are. Mm. 
this you know the this this person has obviously done something and i want to know what it is draw people in to, to I guess maybe so. to this world yeah but, you know it's it's a curiosity on my point you know i mean i guess being a photographer you're kind of um performing because you're showing people the photographs so that they can have a reaction but it's also something for me it's mm-hmm. kind of like a, a diary and a you know kind of a what do they call it a uh not a sketchbook but a uh scrapbook it's like collecting butterflies i think but and you know trying to make people look natural and and real i think is the thing Tell me about uh, Bradford Washburn. His, his picture's on the front cover. I, I'm guessing, uh, well, the thing that strikes me is the, the eyes. He's, <laughs> some people describe this as a steely gaze. There's, there's a lot going on. Well, he's another first. Cassin was the, you know, the first, the beginning of the international people. And uh, when I got Bradford, he was the one that took this away from being about the Sierra. So he, Bradford, was a big explorer of the Alaska Range in the 30s and 40s and 50s. He was also a pilot and uh, an inventor, but he was a really good photographer. And he did aerial photographs using this giant old Navy high-altitude camera that shot 8x10 roll film. And he shot these beautiful, stunning landscapes, on this roll film that was eight by ten, you know, like eight by ten sheet film, but it was roll film. Anyway, but incredible photographs that were also very detailed. Um, you know, super sharp pictures. It's, it's not my thing. I don't care if pictures are sharp or not. That's not a big deal. However, his were very sharp, and they were used for reconnaissance of uh, people putting up new routes for decades, probably still. Um, in the Alps and the bigger ranges. Um, but he was also uh, invited to be the navigator or the second on board Amelia Earhart's round the world air flight. Wow. And he said, he said, I would love to do that, but, you know, I notice we've got radio contact all around the world except this one part of the Pacific. And he said, I would feel a lot more comfortable if, um, and I can do it. I can uh, build a relay transmitter that we can put on an atoll out there that will link up um, the radio signals from, you know, west and to east. And the way he tells it, they turned him down. And so he turned them down. And that's pretty much where they went down with poor radio contact. Wow. Wow, what what might have been, I guess, right? That's the way Bradford describes it. Yeah. Uh, you, you also write in the book um, that not every name in this collection holds marquee value, as you say. I wonder if you could tell me about a couple of the gentlemen you then mentioned, which which seemed to, to me, as you write about them, the most fascinating in the, in the, in the entire book. At least jumped out to me. Um, so I'm quoting from the book here, your, your preface. Uh, you talk about Don Gordon. I went to visit him, you say, in 2015 in his austere and tiny one-room third-floor walk-up in Seattle. Don had lived there alone for 50 of his 84 years. The furnishings were spartan, a few books, a bed, a fold-up card table. And he told me of his all-the-way-on-foot hikes. 
Tell me, tell me about Don Gordon and his all-the-way on-foot hikes. Well, you know, just to add to that scenario is right before that, I was photographing Jim Wickwire, who's a, one of the guys in the book uh, who's done incredible climbs, climbed K2 and all kinds of other stuff. And, um, you know, he's done quite well for himself. He's an attorney and, uh, you know, very beautiful house and a couple cars, happy family, well-kept yard. Nothing wrong with that, Jim, but I'm just stating that's what it was. And I left him and went straight over to Don Gordon's apartment. And to me, it just, I mean, even the outside as I was driving up, it looked like this, God, what did it look like? It looked like an old Kubrick movie, like The Killing. It looked like the uh, a film noir apartment building from the 40s that I was approaching. And sure enough, I go inside, and that's exactly what it was like. Just like these bare bulbs in the in the hallway, a, a three or four story walk up, no elevator. So, and this guy's you know around ninety. Can't remember exactly how old he was. And he had to walk up that every day. So I walk up and I go in his 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 tiny room. So here's two climbers that I'm shooting for my book, you know, and they couldn't be in more, you know different circumstances, which I don't know if that's notable or not, but, um, you know, it, it it looked a little sad. The walls, you know, hadn't been painted in a while, and, you know, if he ate, then he would put the card table up, and when he was through eating, he would fold up the table to have room. But as he started talking, he was, he was like a Zen Buddhist, and I think he was a, a seeker, and I think he was deeply soulful and uh, and intelligent and had thought so much about stuff. And obviously being alone in the room could do that, but I think in general in his life. Uh, he's a guy I, I, I didn't want to leave. I wanted to keep talking to him. He was such a surprising, um, introspective, and just, you know, sometimes when you talk to someone and just, they never have the predictable answer or response. Everything he said I found really intriguing and interesting. In in small ways, he wasn't a big blabber. But, you know, yes. Anyway, you wanted to hear about the all the way on foot hikes. Well, that was one of the things he did. He would walk straight out of that apartment building and head up to some mountain 30 miles away on foot. No buses walk to the mountain, climb the mountain, descend the mountain, and walk all the way back. And if he didn't make it, he would sleep in some vacant lot, which I guess you could do in the 40s, you know, in mm-hmm. Seattle. Um, yeah, and, just just amazing. Just amazing, yeah. You'd, someone is, is he still around or is he passed? No, he died either this year or I think earlier this year. Yeah, yeah, sounds like somebody you want to meet, I guess you We'll have to all wait till we get to the other side for that. Um, and, uh, quoting the, the the next file you talk about, and this this paragraph really stood out to me. Um, you say sometimes the situations seem sad when you first enter into them. An old man living in a room hardly bigger than a prison cell for half a century, and then he opens his mouth, and out come incredible stories from a deep, curious, spiritual soul. And so I guess you could be talking there about uh, Don Gordon. You could also be talking about uh, Fred Becky. Tell me about him. I think I was referring more to Don Gordon, but uh, he was a partner of Fred Becky's. And, I mean, Becky, there's another one. He just passed away 
after an exhausting life of climbing. <coughs> Excuse me, since the 30s. And then Becky, commonly uh, referred to as the most prolific North American climber ever. Mm. But tell me your point about the question was. Uh, uh, yeah, and so let me just read this next part about Becky uh, again. That you you know initially you could see oh this is just sad you know too bad. Uh, so Becky, you say no kids, never married, barely ever held a job, ninety plus years. He was the original quintessential climbing bum. Um, you know, to talk about obsession with climbing. I guess if you talk to Becky, it's not sad. That's, that's his life. That's his obsession. That's what he wants to do. Yes and no. I mean, I think, um, you know, the, the interesting thing about this whole story is what it becomes about, I think, is obsession and devoting your life to things. Um as I've kind of found out myself in life and working on this and seeing the parallels that happen. Um, yes, there's beauty and and amazement in the mountains and all that, but to live the life of a guy like Don Gordon and Fred Becky is, you know, it can be astoundingly frustrating for a partner, meaning a, a wife or girlfriend or, or whatever, so, you know, I think there's some loneliness built into this. Um, you can't have everything in life. I mean, you can you can you can have the cozy life, which, you know, it has nice things about it. But some of these people, you know, like Becky, I mean, he, have you seen this new documentary about him? Uh, I have not. No. Dirt Dirtbag, I highly recommend it. Oh, that sounds I met interesting. These guys that made it, they were around on the festival circuit. Uh, winning some things when I was out there. It's fantastic, because I don't think anybody really realized. Uh, Fred Becky was kind of a famous womanizer, but nobody really thought he ever got any, you know? But these, they go into a whole vignette of photographs of him with the, all these beautiful women, and, and him in a suit, out having cocktails. Like, nobody's ever seen Becky looking like this. And he's laughing, and then there's love letters written to these girls. It's like, you you know, we always just thought he was the dirt bag, just traveling to go climbing. And there's this whole romantic side of him. I mean, that's the whole thing. And, you know, what happened to where, you know, he really did seem to become a loner for those last decades, just climbing, climbing. You know, the first time I met him, he was just you know, starting to become already older than any climber I'd ever seen, and he climbed for another 20 years after that. He just climbed himself. Well, you know, I have a quote in the book you know, that I imagined he would die frozen to the granite like a cicada, dead cicada on a t- tree trunk. It's interesting you, uh, you know, there are a lot of different forms of obsession. I could see how mountain climbing could lend itself to that as a you know, part of the bound up in the attraction of it, but also kind of an occupational hazard. I guess that is, is maybe that's what happened to Becky obsession. Oh, there's no doubt that it happened very early on. Uh, he had a, you know, very analytical mind. He was actually a very smart guy and a very good researcher. His guidebooks that he wrote about the cascades are just meticulous unbelievably researched and put together. I mean, they're works of art or 
more than art, they're just uh, scientific almost. Um, yes, pure obsession about climbing, certainly about the climbing. I mean, he c- could not think that someone would do a first ascent before him, and he, for decades and decades, went out of his way to bag all the classic first ascents he could, kept things secret. He would take people climbing and wouldn't tell them where they were going so they wouldn't <laughs> leak where this thing might be. Let's take another break. When we come back, uh, we'll have another segment uh, with Jim Harrington. His uh, book that we're talking about today is called The Climbers. Documents the rugged individualists who, from roughly the 30s to the 70s, used primitive gear along with their wits, talent, and fortitude to tackle unscaled peaks around the world. Book of photographs. Uh, there is a preface by Jim Harrington, a foreword by Alex Honnold, and an essay there by uh, um, Jim Child. Greg Child. Greg, sorry, Fantastic Greg Child. writer. Yes, wonderful writer. Um, a lengthy essay about the Golden Age. So all of that in the book, The Climbers. And uh, Jim Harrington was in Salt Lake City for an event or two recently, and we're uh, glad to have him with us more following this break. Hi, I'm Lori Brown, in for Tom Power. Oscar nominations always make for one of the biggest days on the entertainment calendar. This year looks even more controversial than usual. We'll break it all down live on the show, coming up on cue from PRI Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. We're back with Jim Harrington. He's author of The Climbers. It's a book of photographs. Also has a foreword by Alex Honnold, uh, a uh, an essay by a uh, Greg Child, and a preface by uh, by the photographer uh, Jim Harrington. You can find uh, more about Jim Harrington at his website, jimharrington.com. You can find out about the book at theclimbersbook.com, and uh, it is out now. Uh, worth uh, worth the look. Um, so Jim Harrington, um, I can't remember where, where this was. I think I was reading this in a review of the book. Uh, they said, it's always dangerous to, to meet your heroes. In, an es- in essence, you're meeting a lot of heroes and taking their, uh, their, their photographs. Was, was that, by and large, a good experience? Did you have bad experiences with that? Well, yeah, it seems to have turned it into a cottage industry of meeting heroes, um, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing unless you're easily uh, disturbed or, you know, disappointed sometimes. I grew up in a small town where I I was a real dreamer as a kid, um, looking at record covers and magazines and movies and wanting to travel the world and see these places and meet these people. Um, You know, I knew really early on I wanted to get out and kind of get amongst some interesting people in life. Um, and also these people that sort of look like heroes, they actually just seem like they should be friends of mine because they seem to have the same interests that I had. And I couldn't find that many people that did when I was younger. So in a way, they just seem like, well, this is the crowd I need to go hang out with. Um, they're into what I like. I can't find anyone here doing it. So... That's probably a little unrealistic, but that's kind of the way I thought. But I started doing the music stuff and started meeting these people. And 
I don't think it's any more or less disappointing than meeting regular people. Um, mm. Some of them are going to be disappointing, but that's the way life goes, you know. Um, and it doesn't bother me because, you know, I still like their music. Or, you know, I've met some people I didn't like or who weren't very cool, but no, I, I think you should meet your heroes if, if you got an interest to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why not? Yeah. Um, I want to quote here. This is from Alex Honnold from his forward to the book. Uh, he says, I've always put my climbing heroes on a pedestal, somehow removed from the rest of us who are merely human. But to do so does them a disservice, since I think their climbs are even more remarkable in the light of their humanity. And I guess you, it's probably what you just said, I think, uh, dovetails with what uh, well, Alex Honnold said. That was Honnold a good one. I, I mm-hmm. thought that was a good one by old Alex. Um, it's true. I mean, you know, I don't know how much I've learned all through the decades I've been doing this. It, it seems like I can always think about it in different ways about, you know, there's just, there are true geniuses walking the earth sometimes, but then you also find out that, you know, that gift of talent comes with a whole lot of hard work, uh, or, you know, a lot of disappointment and stick-to-it-is, <laughs> Stick-to-itiveness. That's it, yes. And, you know, there's qualities of hard work that come with that. So, you know, I'm still amazed at the, the, the genius work of people that, uh, like Jerry Lee Lewis, who seemed to kind of do everything he could to destroy his gift, and it just blazed through no matter what. You, uh, growing up, you had this interest in uh, mountain climbing. You discovered a, uh, a mountain climber who could write eloquently about it. That's, I'm talking about Doug Robinson. So you, you read him, I guess, avidly. At a certain point, you reached out to him. So to, speaking about, you know, meeting your heroes, you, you were able to strike up a friendship with him, and you went climbing with him. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I think what Alex said about the genius thing that, Putting them up on the pedestal can do a disservice because, you know, some of those things you work hard for, and uh, a lot of people don't have the tenacity to, you know, turn into a genius, and that's what it takes is that obsession to be good at something. And Doug Robinson, um, what a great writer and climber. He somehow landed in my lap, not him, but his books when I was a kid, and, you know, that's a whole connection to the Sierra Nevada thing. And he just kind of came into my life through pictures and stories at the right time. And I was kind of seduced by the way he wrote about the mountains and and how he kind of navigated through them. And I really liked his viewpoint. And in the early days of the Internet, I found his phone number somehow. That was one of my earliest amazements of the Internet was like, well, I can just call Doug Robinson. Here's his phone number. So I called him up, and it was right about the time I was starting to think about this project, and I told it, told him about it, and he loved it and was very supportive. And in fact, when I went out and did the first photograph of Glenn Dawson, I mean the first photo for the book, right after that I went climbing with Doug up in the Palisades, which is a alpine part of the Sierra Nevada. And we did a first ascent and had a wonderful week or two together climbing. Really great time. And 
you know, there it is, meeting one of your heroes. And just like my childhood viewpoint of, like, these are my crowd. I need to hang out with them. Well, it's true. That's the way it worked out. Mm-hmm. We're still friends. I was struck by the, the fact you 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 set, I guess, time to meet. You went up and uh, set up camp. So he arrived the next day, you, and then you spent the whole day talking. You, you didn't get in the mountains until the third day. Well, that's me, and that's Doug. Okay, um, all right. That's not standard yeah, I, mountain climbing. I, that's, I, that's just you and Doug. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, he told me where to meet him, which was up at about 11,000 feet in the uh, Sierra Nevada up there. And I hiked in about seven miles and got up to the place, and no Doug. And it was starting to snow, and it was getting dark. And so I pitched my tent and spent the night. And he showed up the next day with sunshine and eggs and coffee. And we just sat around talking for hours until it was too late to do anything else. It really was a a wonderful time. And he's become one of my best friends. And we climbed the second day. Coffee and eggs first. Yeah, yeah, that's that comes first. That's right. I want to read this passage from the book. This is you, very poetic. This is on your climb with Doug Robinson. Uh, you say the sun lowered, then disappeared behind the clouds, and finally behind the mountains. Gray light turned to black. The growl began to fall on us. Soft pulses of lightning backlit the swirling clouds, and we climbed on. It's these moments that could be represented in a German expressionist woodcut. Inky vertical slashes, dominant minimalist shapes in monochrome, a near-opaque palette. And always the void below, unseen but its presence felt. As I read that, I I felt a kind of a tinge of vertigo. I'm a non-mountain climber, kind of afraid of uh, heights. That Always the void below, you can't see it, its presence felt. Well, at night you can't see it. You can certainly see it in the daytime. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. That was one of those magical climbs. Uh, you know, some are more magical than others. And, you know, again, that was one, one of those trips that stand out in my memory of my whole life about the way we met and became friends and that climb. Uh, you know, it, it was that that I wrote about. What uh, what part of the, how big a part of it is the that void the danger the I guess the exhilaration of overcoming that what is is that a, a big part of it or or is it something else? Well, everybody thinks climbers are um, you know I hate the word extreme sports and I I hate um, you know daredevils and death defying you know. Climbers want to die less than anybody else. They're out there really enjoying life. They don't want to die. They're definitely doing everything they can not to. Uh, The danger, it is weird because, you know, most of us climbers, we like the moves. We like the, the view, the situation, the experience of being up there. You know, being high up does add a certain thing um it yeah it's it's so hard to describe this stuff without sounding cheesy but you know just like you play baseball or football with your you know talent that you learned how to do that this it's the same thing with climbing you've got you've trained you've become physically fit you've learned all the techniques um 
Yeah, and it's kind of like the playing field. And sometimes it can be really dangerous. Sometimes it's not so much. But you know, maybe that's the same with getting hit by a three hundred pound linebacker. That's yeah. not that safe either. Right, right. Not for me, anyway. Well, to continue the, the the sports analogy with the other sports, the camaraderie. I I suppose you know some of these climbers, some climbers still today go out alone. I suppose, but usually it's in the company of other people. And that camaraderie, how how big a part of it is that? Oh, a huge part. Um, you know, there's so much. Uh, of that involved, you know, you look at the old Alps climbers, the partnerships of uh, Don Willens and Chris Bonington and Joe Brown, all these people, legendary partnerships through the years all over the world, a lot of humor involved. Um, oh, I think it's more important than the solo stuff. There's always been solo climbers. Every climber has soloed something in some degree, whether hard or difficult and there's something really fantastic about that to go into the mountains when you've become comfortable in them you know doing whatever you decide to tackle solo is very gratifying i think for most people but the camaraderie is is the best way to do it as it goes in life you know having company is nice Mm -hmm. Finally, uh, I want to ask a question not about the people, but about the process. Uh, so you started out uh, with you know, photographing on film. Then uh, as the 20-year project uh, went forward, we went, became an age of digital photography. And I guess it was a, a feel, and you wanted to continue to uh, photograph on film. So that I guess they'd have the same feel. They're all black and white as well. Um I wonder if you talk about that, that, that um, I guess there is a possibility that maybe film would phase out. You'd have to do the final you know, ones on digital. Well, it was a bit scary because, you know, I, you know especially shooting in the 80s and, <clears throat> and assisting. I started off assisting some uh, kind of noted photographers. And, you know, I just remember when I was young and in the 80s, you know, this Polaroid film we would shoot, it was so incredibly uh, manufactured and the quality control in the film. And I used to have this thought, you know, like Kodak and Polaroid, they we are the most important people in the world to them. But it took me a long time to realize that we weren't. It's actually Granny with her camera. Um, you know, the professional part of the film world was only a small percentage the real money is in the thanksgiving and christmas photos that your aunt takes that's where the money is so you know this technology came in and i loved film and i always have i love working with it i love the speed of it um you know the cameras and the way it looks most importantly and so, especially as this you know book project came on, it suddenly looked like after the digital things started happening in 2000 that there may not be any film. It was quite scary because people were going out of business all day long, paper manufacturers, film, and I couldn't uh, figure out which was going to disappear first, the film I was shooting or the climbers I was photographing. Hmm. What is it about the look? 
You, you like the look, you say, on, on film, not digital. There's just a way uh, black and white lays that, you know, I've never seen it really recreated on digital. And I'm not putting digital down so much um, for anyone else. And you can process it and do all kinds of things. But it just doesn't have that analog look. You know, it's hard to describe in words. There's just something square. There's pixels in digital photography, even though you can't see them. I can sense them. <laughs> I can smell them out. And there's, you know, the scattered silver nitrate film grain that makes up, you know, it's microscopic. You would have to get a microscope to see it. But you feel it. I feel it. And I like that it's physical. It's um, metal. It's actually silver, metal. You know, you can't accidentally delete it. Um, I love the way the lenses and the cameras behave. Uh, I like actually running out of film after a roll. I get kind of discombobulated when there's endless amounts of shooting. I can just keep shooting. There's a kind of a pause that changing a roll of film gives you. Um, and it's a little bit dangerous. You don't know until you get the film processed whether you even got it or not. Uh, I like that. I, it's what I grew up with. It's just what's comfortable to me, and it's I get the results that I like in the way that I like to get them. Well, you can uh, see the results uh, in uh, in a new book out from Jim Harrington. We reached the end of our time with him, and uh, his book is called The Climbers. It's uh, photographs of uh, climbers, mountain climbers, from uh, the golden age of climbing roughly the 30s to, to the 70s. And uh, it is out. You can uh, find more about it at theclimbersbook.com. Uh, you can uh, find out more about Jim Harrington at jimharrington.com. By the way, uh, Jim, I'm looking at uh, this beautiful photograph of uh, Dolly Parton that's on the kind of the front fr- uh, front Dolly. of your... Yeah. I had a couple shoots with her for a couple different album covers back in the late 90s. What a doll. Yeah, this is in a beautiful... sense of the word. Black and white photo, just uh, just beautiful. Uh, so you can see a bunch of other photos of uh, musicians. That's what he's more known for. But uh, this book out now of uh, mountain climbers, uh, so well worth the uh, the look. Um, and uh, Jim Harrington, thank you so much. Thank you. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Heard on KUSR Logan. KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard online at upr.org.